Okay, hi, hello. I'm I'm Erika Grönberg and I live in Stockholm, Sweden. My name is Hayes Hawk. I'm in Los Angeles, California. Uh, Dr. Professor Sudha Reddy uh, in India. Uh, my name is Elke. I'm a midwife in Anchorage, Alaska. My name is Hannah Freiwald. I'm originally German. I've been living in Guatemala for the last 31 years. My name is Hannah Darlin and I'm professor of midwifery at Western Sydney University in uh, the west part of, of Sydney, Australia. My name is Debbie Engelbrecht. I live in South Africa. I'm Cecilia Nakubra from Uganda, East of Africa. I'm a midwife for seven years. And I've been a midwife for 20 years. I first got into maternal child health in 96 when I was living in Chile. I'm living in Demoni, Israel, in the Hebrew Israelite community. And it's incredibly powerful to witness the birth of a child and the birth of the family and the birth of the individuals in the room. For me, it's the most wonderful, amazing, miraculous honor ever. Our job as midwives is to be Sherpas, not usurpers. For me, it's a sacred place, it's a secret place, it's a private place and I have the honor of receiving these little babies. I'm, I'm in the business of watching universes being created. I mean, th there's no better job. Hello and welcome to the Worldwide Midwifery Podcast. I'm your host, Augustine Colebrook. In this episode, we are focusing on California, specifically Southern California, and we have two guests. Jean DeClerc from Boston University School of Public Health will be joining us in our research segment. Jean has spent a lifetime studying maternal child health. His recent work in examining maternal mortality and morbidity in the U.S. has emphasized the importance of a systems-level approach to improving women's health. He is part of a collaborative team that has completed three national studies and a 2018 statewide study of women's experiences in childbirth entitled Listening to Mothers, we are focusing on the Listening to Mothers California study. He was a technical advisor on the film documentary The Business of Being Born and a producer and presenter of Birth by the Numbers, a 20-minute video that examines outcomes associated with current U.S. birth practices. With student collaborators, he developed and maintained the companion website, birthbythenumbers.org, which provides up-to-date data on trends in childbirth practices and outcomes in the United States. He was a principal investigator in two NIH-funded collaborative projects examining child and maternal outcomes associated with assisted reproductive technologies. We are so excited to hear his perspective today. But first, we have the great honor of speaking with the Reverend Hayes Hawk, a student midwife and spiritual counselor in Los Angeles in California. Hayes is the proud mother of three, a world traveler, educator, facilitator, and leader in her community. She facilitates sacred circles, coming of age, and rites of passage rituals, and she delights in mentoring people, specifically to become activated, in-tuned, strong, loving, grounded, and powerful beings. After being a healer and attending births for more than 20 years, Hayes is in the final stages of completing her clinical training in midwifery in order to sit for her NARM exam here in the United States. She believes, as do many of us, that peace on earth begins with birth. It's my great pleasure to discuss birth and all things midwifery with the amazing Hayes Hawk. I never even thought that I would have children. I just, it wasn't something I was focused on. But when I got with child, <laughs> when I got with child, I just knew that it was time and it was right. And I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do it, you know? And then I had no idea 
that I would want a midwife. Literally, I didn't think about birth or children at all. So at the time, I just knew I was into trusting the process, trusting my body. I believed in myself and I believed that I should have everything around me that would support me having the birth that I wanted. And that led me to a midwife. And the midwife had a best friend there in town and she asked if she could come assist my birth. And I said, okay. She said, I, you know, I can help. I am really good at it. And I said, okay, great. So she, she was there and literally like an hour and a half into it, I was like, okay, what is this you're doing? Cause you're saving my life. You're what, what is, what is this called? <laughs> she was so amazing. And she said, I'm a doula. And I was like, oh, what's a doula? And she explained it to me. I said, okay, so how do I do that? And she said, well, you're having a baby. I said, yeah, yeah, I know. But like, how do I do what you're doing? And she, I said, I'll write it down. And literally between surges, <laughs> I was writing down what she did and how she studied and, and everything. And then three years later, after my son weaned, I began my journey and I studied everything that she studied which I did not realize was leading me to midwifery. I took nutrition, I got certified nutrition, homeopathy, um, massage therapy, what else did I do? Herbology, like literally, I studied everything and I went through this amazing program called, at the time it was called ALICE, that's the acronym. And um, all of that led me to desiring to become a midwife crazy right that's awesome I like love literally it. I love nowhere it, my, my friends who know me now I mean who knew me then before this are surprised that because I was a dancer and a theater person I was a, you know I was all Broadway baby <laughs> I was theater and dance I was loving Alan Ailey I was studying there and like crazy that now I've just done this whole thing but everything all of it informs who I am right now as, you know, this birth worker, this person who is there to empower women um, and, you know, men too in, in the birth process. Midwives stand at this threshold between the world. And I wonder if, if you could tell us what it feels like to welcome new humans on the planet. It's one of the most prolific experiences. It's interesting for me too, in a way, because, you know, I started off as a birth doula, as you know, here now operating as a primary midwife and also being a death doula, like the whole experience for me, I just see the cycle. I see that first breath and understand that first breath and last breath are the same. And it's incredibly powerful to witness the birth of a child and the birth of a family and the birth of the individuals in the room. You know, it's kind of, um, it's kind of the most <laughs> surreal, mind-blowing experience that you can have because you see the essence of life. You see that there's this portal. You know, I always believe, <laughs> I always believe that when 
the birth mother is is pregnant, she is becoming immortal. And then at the height of labor, she's immortal, supreme. And after the baby's born, she goes back to being mortal, kind of. But it's a very unique experience. I find that there's nothing else like it. I feel honored to be in that space and place where there is this beautiful chemistry of, of trust and transparency. And it's just, I don't know how to explain it. I don't know if that answers your question. It's just it's beautiful. one of the most amazing processes ever. I bow down each time in reverence to the process, to the human body, to the birth person. Just like, oh, I can't believe I, I get to do it. I, you know, I just <laughs> Welcoming that spirit who arrived is like, yeah. it's, it's a spiritual experience. Hugely spiritual. I, that's the only way I know how to do it too, you know, so... Yeah. Some of my background and my training has led me to this and honoring the spiritual aspect of it and healing whatever is there for the mother in their ancestry line and really connecting with that baby and seeing that baby's pur- pur- uh, purpose and process. It's amazing. It is amazing. Well, so one of the things that makes midwifery, I think, so unique compared to the obstetrical model of care is this phenomenon of holding space. Mm-hmm. Will you tell mm-hmm. us a bit about what holding space means to you? Holding space to me means that you are providing a safe container for this woman to show up powerfully in her vulnerability so that she can be raw, be primal, she doesn't have to worry about holding it down. She can just fly in the experience. Um, it's basically setting the tone and setting the mood. It's honoring uh, her process. It's allowing her to be fully expressed and fully realized. And that way, she can be fully activated in her birthing. That's what it means to mm-hmm. me. Mm. that's beautiful so I feel like every midwife has like a thing something (laughs) that they're really good at um and sometimes it's because they keep having to experience that and I wonder what's your what's your thing like what are you really really good at what is my thing I feel you know what I'm really good at I'm really good at making people feel safe. I'm really good at it. I don't know how, but I'm really good at making them feel safe. And I'm really good at motivating them when they think they're done and they don't have anything else. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. God, I love that. (laughs) Thank you for that. Um, Well, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about... um, a little bit more about the culture of birth um, mm-hmm. and specifically like where you are located. Um, so practicing in LA, tell us about what a typical birth is like in LA. Ooh, okay. So here in Los Angeles, you know, one of the things that I really love about the midwifery model is that we are really 
um, we really create an intimate space with, you know, our clients. And so a typical relationship is, you know, we have the same prenatal schedule as an obstetrician. Um, our meetings are about an hour long because we want to know the whole experience. We want to see what's happening mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And we want to build the relationship. And the only way we can build that relationship is, you know, through proximity. And so I love those prenatal appointments because we're really getting to know one another. We're building trust and communication. And it's really fantastic. So by the time we actually get into the labor process, we've got a relationship that's running like clockwork. It's, there's a lot of trust and there is the ability to see one another and breathe each other in. It's perfect. Um, so we do those prenatal visits. We do those, you know, we do all the, the testing and we can do all this, the blood draws and everything else. And I also love that we, we combine it with well women as the, at the same time. So once we get into that labor process, I know their body, they know me, and then we just dive in. And so the only challenge that we really have in Los Angeles is traffic. <laughs> you know, we're here trying to get <laughs> trying to get where we gotta go. And then, you know, say <clears throat> say that there is um, a couple of mamas going like trying to go or revving up we've got to negotiate the traffic and see how we're going to do this and it's just that's the the challenging part but also the fun part it's like playing tetris trying to figure out how to make it all fit um but by the time we get into the labor process which one of the things i love about it is we are there you know we don't come early because we like to have we like to have the couple the birth couple really support each other and keep it nice and juicy and just let, let it marinate like that. They do better together before we come. And so then we come and it's just like, we just kind of ease in like, you know, you don't want to come in abruptly. We just kind of ease in like into a warm pool and then we just kind of set up quietly and then we're holding space right we're watching them and there to assist them in having the birth they want we're just making sure everything's okay but they're doing it which is the most amazing thing ever and then by the time you know the babies come you know everyone's rejoicing everyone's uh, you know so happy and we go about the business of checking mama checking baby cleaning up and then the next thing you know we're out the door. And I, I love this part because the, the couples are always like, wait, you're leaving? You're gone? We're done? This is it? And they look around, the house is clean and the pool's gone and <laughs> we're gone and they have a baby. It's the best thing ever when you get that text and they're saying, I can't believe we have a baby. And like, there's no sign of it around the house. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's the best I thing. love that. I asked Hayes to tell us a little bit about the difference between birth in L.A. and around the rest of the country from her experience. Los Angeles, and California in particular, is unique to birth in America in the sense that we really believe in 
home birth in a way that is supportive, even though we only make up like one to 2% of all births, right? It's growing and people are finding that we have a type of care that prevents a lot of complications in birth, you know, and it's a type of care that people are desiring. They want more support. They want more empowerment and they want to feel like they can birth the way they want to. And from my experience in the, you know, I grew up in the South and and I lived all over the America because my dad was in the Air Force. So my experience in the Midwest, this is very much hospital birth oriented and it's very much all the protocols happening. Like where they go in, they definitely get an IV. They go in, they're definitely staying on the monitor the whole time. They might not be getting up. And here we really seem to have women who desire to be more in control of their births. And even in a hospital setting, they are doing intermittent monitoring. They are asking for no IV. They are um, telling them what position they want to be birthing in. And um, they're up and about walking. And a lot of times they won't even want to come in until they're really active. Uh, It's a difference in ownership that that I've noticed um, around the country, um, especially like New York. Um, I used to live in New York and it's a, it's night and day from my experience. It's night and day. Hayes has also traveled extensively in the world. She has some fantastic stories. Let's listen in. When I was in Africa studying with the traditional midwives there and the hospitals there, we did both. Birth looked very similar in the sense of the process and the physiology of birth. The difference was the amount of stuff. In Africa, there's very little that you can use, but these traditional midwives, man, hats off to them. They are powerful. And the ones we met were like 90 something, who knows how old they were. I know that the oldest one was in the hundreds. And the youngest one was like 70 something. Um, and some of them couldn't even see, but they could see everything. Like I, one of the best experiences I had was learning how to see with your whole body. They really have such innate senses that they're like tuned in. And even though they don't have a lot of equipment, they had a lot of herbs, they had, you know, sharp knives. They, they, they had the things that they needed and the things that they needed were very few. Um, and everything else they did with herbs, everything else they did with the tools they had there and the, the traditions that they were trained with. And when I was in India, the difference was that it wasn't so, it wasn't, what was it? It was not as intimate. In Africa, there was a community of, of women taking care of women. In India, it was very much um, just like the mother or sister or auntie, if that was, you know, a home birth. But in India, also, there's lots of um, centers that they birth in, too. So they have a little bit more equipment. They have, that's the same thing. They have a lot of equipment, a lot of drugs, whereas Africa did not have a lot of drugs. They had to use herbs. If they had Pitocin, they were grateful, extremely grateful. If there was an oxygen tape, they were thrilled. Um, those, those are the things that stand out the most 
for me. Um, Cuba was very, no, there wasn't a lot of home births in Cuba. There was just, but there was a lot of hospital births, but they were straightforward births. They didn't have to use a lot of uh, interventions. There was none of that going on. Africa must have been like the, the most inspiring for me, but the most challenging because there wasn't hardly anything and we just have to figure it out, make do with what we had. And there was one incubator and yeah, most of the time, no oxygen. This is a listener supported podcast. If you like what you're listening to and would like to hear more of it, please consider becoming a patron. It's easy to do. Worldwide Midwifery has a Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Worldwide Midwifery, where you can choose your level of support starting at just two US dollars per month. Your financial support allows us to keep offering this content ad-free and allows you to contribute to our guest choices. If you would like access to our extensive show notes, including our research segment, there is a $5 US option. I asked Hayes to tell us what she wishes the world knew about birth or midwifery. Here's what she had to say. I wish throughout the world, definitely the United States, that women and families realize that they have the power to say no, that they don't have to. Like I, I, met, a, I met a woman in, um, where was I? Hong Kong. And she, we just were speaking and she was telling, we, I don't know how we got on birth, but we did. And she told me about her birth experience. And I mentioned, oh, I'm sorry you did that. You didn't have to do that. And she said, what do you mean? <laughs> and I said, uh, I don't know if we should have that conversation. I don't want you to feel like you were robbed or you did something wrong or anything. She said, no, 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 because I'm going to have another baby. So what did I, what did I not need to do? <laughs> and I said, well, all the things that are set up are not necessarily set up in the best interest of the birth mama. So you can question those things and see if you want them. You have the right to informed consent and you have the right to autonomy and you have, and she's, she was, floored and amazed and then started recording me (laughs) so that she would remember that she could say no to monitoring and just do intermittent that she could say no to um, different drugs that she didn't want to have for herself or her baby that they didn't have to bathe her baby right away and you know just simple things like that I just think that because in our culture around the world, we trust hospitals that we just agree with whatever they're saying to do without really owning what it is that they're saying that we should do. Um, and that's, I think that's the difference in, of home birth and hospital birth is that a home birth, you're doing it. It's you, mama, you, you got this. And in a hospital birth, a lot of the mentality is that you're surrendering up your power to have somebody do it for you. And I just think that that would be, that's the information I would love to have spread around the world, that you have more power than you think. Will you tell us a little birth story? 
Okay, I got a good one. It just jumps to my mind. I swear I'm going to write these stories down and publish this book. Um, I had a, yes, I had a birth up in Topanga Canyon. And for people who don't know Topanga Canyon is, it's very, it's like a <clears throat> hilly area of Los Angeles that's right by the ocean. So there's like, it's like a mountainous area. It's cliffs, it's lots of trees, dirt roads. And, you know, there's one way into Topanga and there's one way out of Topanga. And um, it was late at night. It must have been around 1230 in the morning. And it was a very steep hill. And I had not done the home visit. So I was trying to find this place in my little car, driving up literally what seemed like an impossible steep hill. And I was like, I'm not gonna make it. My car is gonna go backwards and not, it's, it, this is it. This is how it's gonna end. But I finally made it up and I get there and we're birthing in a, you know, those old school silver streams? Yes, Airstreams. Airstreams, Airstreams, the yes. silver ones, right? This one was yes. about from the 60s, 70s. And it was perched on top of this cliff. And there were goats everywhere and llamas. And they're frolicking all over the place. And I walk into this stream, and this Airstream, and first of all, it's the size of a bathroom, right? Which, you know, midwives have birth in small places. It's very common. This is the size of a bathroom. It, there were like seven cats in this small space, and they were all long-haired cats. So there's hair everywhere. There's goats hitting, jumping, and ramming the silver stream. Mind you, the silver stream is on the edge of a cliff. So I'm like, we're, we're, this is it. We're not gonna make it. This, I can't sit down. I'm not drinking anything from here because literally there was, there, it was the crazy, we literally stood up there and we stood and we didn't drink and we didn't pee. <laughs> <laughs> and we just, we held on whenever those llamas and, and goats started ramming and we're just like, it's, okay, we're just, we're like, hurry up and have a baby. Hurry up and have a baby. <laughs> I couldn't oh, believe it. God. And we're talking a lot of goats. There were like nine goats. And then there were baby ones. And then they would let them come in and they would just dump right there. Oh my God. Goat poo is not, I, the whole thing was crazy. And I was Home like, I can't such believe. such a unique experience, isn't it? Every single time. Every single one is unique. And yeah, they, I, that one, that one, that was a good one. That was, that was, that was a, there with my Motley Crue Metallica birth. That, that was the same. Yeah. <laughs> right up there. Yeah. With the rock, rock, rock music and rockers hanging out. And yes, you had one of those too. I had one of those too. She was happy as that. She was just, she was in her element and she just loved it. And she did, I was like, okay, we can rock out. I like, you know, back and black. I, yeah, cool. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. I was doing an interview for a couple once and she was really on board and the dad was kind of like, mm, I'm not sure about this home birth thing. And um, we were talking and giving him answers and everything. And finally, as he's getting ready to go, he goes, okay, I'm, I'm for it. But I just have one request. Can, can we please not play Enya? 
<laughs> and I was like, oh, I love it. The stereotypes of home birth in the US are so interesting. I feel like so many, there's like kind of two, two major camps. And one is like, I'm having a home birth because it's cleaner and safer than the hospital. Mm-hmm. And then there's this whole other group that's like, I'm having a home birth because like it's dirtier than the hospital. <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah. like, like your couple, like I can't bring my dogs or my cat to my birth. I'm definitely having a home birth. Exactly. Or in this case, bring your goats to your home birth. In the airstream. Now, mind you, we're not touching anything because there's layers and layers of cat hair everywhere. And, you know, that's cool because that's their, that's their vibe and they have the right to birth in their vibe. But she is happy. She is feeling powerful. He's so in love. And it was just really amazing. It was beautiful. We just had to wait for her. Like, literally, we're just holding space. We're just like, whenever you're ready, we're ready. We, we didn't, we didn't really unpack anything because, you know, we, we unpacked things on top of our cases because we couldn't get it out of the sterile field. So, <laughs> sterile. You know, nothing was sterile. Birth's not sterile anyway, but that's like a whole new level of not sterile. Exactly. Yeah, it was a whole new level of not sterile. But, you know, they were good. And that's what home birth is. That's It's the powerful aspect of it, that they felt great about everything that was happening. So, while I'm waiting to fall off the cliff, waiting for her to start pushing, we're just kind of saying, okay, if something goes down, where are we going to put her? Where are we going to put the baby? So, you know, we're planning strategically. And um, then she just decides that she's going to do this standing up. She says, it's time. She starts pushing. She's kind of squatting, but she's holding on to, like, where there's, where the sink is. She's holding on to that so she can see all the goats as they're frolicking past the window. <laughs> you know, every now and then there's one peeking his head inside. And, you know, I just, I I had to block the door because I was like, because goat poop is just, it's pellets, like lots of pellets that fall out and roll. I was like, I can't. I just, I can't. So, so, um, so I blocked the door and then we just started squatting down with her to do this. And she did not push for a long time. She was so happy. She was just like, my baby's coming. My baby's coming. And we're like, your baby is definitely coming. You are doing a great job, mama. And he's like, you're amazing. You're amazing. This is amazing. So, so maybe she pushed for 40 minutes. Maybe. And um, she caught her baby. We were just there to assist. Baby was absolutely perfection. Color was great. Cry was good. Tone was amazing. You know, just like it was just, it was perfection. We couldn't have asked for anything better except not to go down that steep hill. Right. <laughs> oh, oh we gosh. still had to get, yeah. So we were there longer, you know, because we had to make sure everybody's good, baby's good. We put them into their little cozy area afterwards. And um, she didn't need suturing. She needed nothing. It was just perfection. And we went over postpartum instructions and planned for when, you know, one of us was coming back 24 hours later. And um, mm-hmm. 
left them happy as pigs and slop. Oh my gosh. No That's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. <laughs> and you know, we make so much fun of like the really crazy scenarios in other birth stories on this podcast. We've heard some really amazing situations that midwives uh-huh. attend. And and this is the brilliance of it. Like it's not what I would choose, but it's what right. she would choose. And that's what matters. And that's what powered her up and had that birth be amazing and exactly. beautiful. And it not Uneven. only provides for their like psychological safety, it actually is physically safer. We've seen exactly. all of these studies, like they get um an infection from right. the hospital. Right. So it's actually physically safer, right? I mean, we're immune to the environment we live in. Otherwise we would be sick all the time. So the fact that she's healthy and well means that she is safest in her own environment. Goat poop and all. (laughs) Exactly. And ultimately that's what I was like, you know what? They have been with us for the entire nine months and they have not been sick a day. Right. They're fine. I said, so let me stop tripping. It's my whole judgmental thing. Let it go and absolutely enjoy the whole process after I got through my stuff. And it was just there, just for the brilliance of her birth. It was amazing. I love it. And then it creep me- down that hill, creep slowly. Yeah, just like, creep. <laughs> just creep. Hopefully it was I, daylight they, by then. Uh, it was, it wasn't quite. It wasn't oh, quite. I, I, once I got down and was on the coastline, the sun was coming up, but oh, it was still. A, I know that drive. That's a beautiful one. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me think of um, that documentary, Babies. Do you remember that? Came out. I like- do. I love that. Yeah. Now I gotta watch it. Now I gotta watch yeah, it again. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing film, and there's no narration, and it peeps into these four babies' lives from birth yeah. to about 18 months. And right. the juxtaposition between the baby in Mongolia <laughs> who's fighting over bones with the dog and the San Francisco baby who's being shot backed by its parents to get every speck of dust off. It's so perfect. You know, that's, that's the kind of extremes that we support. And really, it's not about, it's not about what it looks like to us. It's about what it feels nope. like. His family. Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. That's beautiful. Isn't it amazing? So yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> that's that's a really beautiful window into, into <laughs> midwifery. Well, it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot. This episode of Worldwide Midwifery is supported by ClientCare.net. Transform your practice with the most complete and affordable EHR and midwifery practice management system available so you can focus on the care that matters most. Designed for and by community-based midwives, they offer a free 30-day trial. Clientcare.net. I'm Gene DeClerc. I'm a professor of community health sciences at the Boston University School of Public Health. And I've been a researcher on issues related to childbirth uh, and maternity care forever. And what got you started on that? Why are you fascinated by childbirth? Um, Actually, I'm amazed that everyone isn't fascinated by (laughs) childbirth. It's the richest area one could research, I would imagine, because it involves everything from physiology to psychology to sociology to economics to politics 
so I find it uh, an incredibly rich area to allow one to look at things from an interdisciplinary perspective. And, um, and it affects people's lives. And I can't imagine. Massive way. Yeah. yeah. I can't imagine what would be more interesting than that. Yeah. I love that. Well, so um, you've been a part of a number of studies. You've been quoted many, many times in the media. I'm wondering, um, we're specifically focusing on California for this episode. And I believe you were a part of the Listening to Mothers California study. Will you tell us some about how that happened? Yeah, the California Health Foundation has supported a number of notable efforts to improve maternity care in California. Um, and what's happened is they've, um, they've established the uh, CMQCC, the California Maternity Care Quality Collaborative there. And have done a number of notable things, much of it with um, Health Care Foundation funding. And in doing that, they dealt with a lot of the clinical issues that are problematic and have contributed to high maternal mortality rates, like putting out toolkits on how to deal with postpartum hemorrhage or eclampsia, for instance. The Healthcare Foundation, I think, very thoughtfully said, what's the next area we have to move to? And it's um, listening to mothers themselves about their experience. And not just from a clinical perspective, but from a, a life course perspective. And the best way to do that was to actually talk to and more importantly, listen to mothers. And so um, they were in discussions with us. There's a small team of us who've worked on these listening to mothers surveys since the um, first one came out in 2002. And um, the person involved from the California Healthcare Foundation, uh, Stephanie Telecki, talked with Maureen Corey who has been the contact for these kinds of things for us over the years and um, decided that they would be interested in supporting a, a California survey. And so one thing led to another. I mean, this, this is over the course of years, but um, thanks to the um, generosity of the Healthcare Foundation and the savviness of uh, people like Maureen Corey and Carol Sakala, we're able to do it and provide some information that I think is useful to their campaigns in California. I think a few things stand out. Um, one is the distinction in experiences reported by mothers by, um, among other things, race, ethnicity, and insurance status. And that the experiences that they have um, depend in part on who you are. And, and I think that's, that's notable, because what we'd like to think of is we have a healthcare system where the only thing that matters is what your health status is. And what we found, and what we found over the years, is that it, what also matters to a great degree is the, um, who you are and where you live and what um, background you have. And mm -hmm. so, for instance, um, women who had private insurance were more likely to report um, the ability to make choices around things like um, who their provider was and what hospitals they go to, um, whether or not how they were treated in in labor itself, um, in terms of being asked about their opinions on things and their ability to have choices um, in those situations. Likewise, we found um, relatively low rates, actually compared to our earlier surveys, relatively low rates of women reporting disrespect and abuse during labor. And, it's, and, and I don't want to overstate the abuse by it's mostly disrespect. Um, mm -hmm. their opinions not being respected, um, not being asked about things. Um, th those rates were low comparatively. We're talking in the um, single digits. 
but it was much, much more likely in the case of women of color than it was for um, non-Hispanic white women, for instance. Indeed, and, and we're seeing this across all health metrics that, that racial disparities are quite staggering in the United States. And you saw that in your report as well. Yeah, I mean, sometimes what research does is it confirms what you thought you knew anyway. Um, thankfully, sometimes it also challenges what you thought you knew anyway. Mm -hmm. But uh, in this case, I think it was more a confirmation of what people had suspected for some time. So as a result of this, of this report, well, actually, before we go into that, I have a quick question. Was there any um, survey questions or conclusions that could be drawn on um, experiences out of the system, community-based birth, like birth centers or home birth, or was this an all-hospital survey? Yeah, this was an all-hospital survey. Um, over the years, the listening to mothers, the very first one was everybody. But since then, we focused on hospital births in part because it's a survey. So the sample sizes are going to be yeah. in the order of a couple thousand people. In California, it was 2,539 women. Um, and what happens is if you look at home births, home births in California are a fraction of a percent. Yeah. They're relatively low, even compared to other states. And so what you'd end up with is maybe 20 people in the yeah. sample, and you can't really analyze 20 people. Yeah. So yeah. There, there are two of the limitations we have in listening to mother surveys are that we don't do out-of-hospital births, um, and we don't do plural births, mothers with twins or, or more, uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, for that reason. Simply the, the, the results would not give us enough cases to do any analysis with anyway. So as a result of this study and the conclusions in this large report that were drawn, um, are you aware of what California is is attempting to do with these uh, results? Um, the Healthcare Foundation has done um, a number of outreach elements associated with this. So there's um, there's not just the report, but um, there's been a number of uh, fact sheets and issue briefs that have been done in association with it. Um, Webinars have been done with clinicians in California. Um, and I think they use it as a sort of foundation tool when they go out and work on their advocacy in the state around changes. Um, I'm amazed as an academic who generally just, you know, pumps out research studies like other academics. It's nice to see people who can take those studies and um, turn them into products that would be more relevant to a larger public. From, from your experience as um as a researcher for all these years, what do you think is next? What needs to be studied next? What, what are we not focusing on? Um, specifically California, but even across the nation. Um, I think a couple areas. There's been a lot of emphasis on maternal mortality of late um, with the identification of higher than expected rates of maternal mortality. And that's the sort of issue du jour, right? This is the one everybody is talking about. In point of fact, I think there's a larger question we have to deal with, and that's the um, death of women of reproductive age. Um, what hasn't been noted in all of this is that um, the maternal mortality rate has gone up in the United States, and it's higher than other industrialized countries. That's been very clearly established. What um, hasn't gotten the same level of attention is the fact that the, um, the overall death rate for women of reproductive age is going up pretty rapidly, uh, whether they're pregnant or not. In fact, the overall death rate for women between 25 and 34 
has gone up by 23% between 2010 and 2016. That's actually going up at a faster rate than the maternal mortality rate is going up. And that's pretty much a function of um, both some mental health issues and substance issues in general. Wow. And we see that in maternal mortality as well. I'm on the Massachusetts Maternal Mortality Review Committee. I don't know if it's a majority, but it's certainly a significant, very significant proportion of our cases involve um, some issues of substance use. And so if we're talking about improving maternal health, one of the things we have to understand is we can't start trying to improve maternal health when women are pregnant. That this is something we have to, well, first of all, we have to improve women's health because women's health matters in and of itself and not simply because they're pregnant and we want them to have a healthy baby. Right. Isn't that such an important distinction? We've been so baby focused that somehow we've kind of almost lost the mother in maternity care. Oh, that's certainly been a theme for a long time. You know, the, the phrase putting putting M back in MCH is, is sort of common use among public health people. Um, and that, that's absolutely true. And so if we want to have healthier babies, one of the things we can do is have healthier women. Note, I didn't say healthier mothers, healthier women. And uh, so that they start their pregnancies in a healthier state. Um, and that after they've had their baby, we continue to pay attention to their health. Um, and if the only way you can justify that is to say, so they'll have a healthier baby next time, okay, we can use that. But the fact of the matter is, I think it's important that we do that simply because it's the right thing to do. So what, what, what can um, folks who are listening to this, like, what are some on the ground things that, that we can do, that we can implement, that we can communicate, that we can talk about, that we can ring the bell about to shift this culture? Um, I think I think part of it is the extension of, um, and, and this sounds boring, but the extension of Medicaid, the expansion of Medicaid in states where they haven't expanded, it would be really helpful. But one of the other things we found is that um, in a number of states, what happens is this: they may have, they have a given standard um, that if you're below, uh, the average is 133 percent. If you're below 133 percent of the poverty level you qualify for Medicaid. Um, if you're pregnant, on average, that goes up to about 200% of the poverty level. But what happens to women is after they've had their babies, that drops back. Now, usually with, within 60 days, that drops back. But one of the things we found is about 11% of the maternal deaths, what we're calling maternal deaths, um, are happening between 42 days and a year after the birth. And the arguments being made is, um, gee, if we're going to track deaths out till a year after birth, maybe we should cover women at least out to a year after birth. And so one of the things that would be really helpful is um, policies that do provide that, to provide coverage so that, again, if the best case is to help them with their next pregnancies, then use that. But to start to say, we need to keep people in the system. Oftentimes what we find when we review these um, maternal deaths, I don't want to focus just on that, but it's sort of the, the tip of the spear of the problem um, is women who have been lost to the system. You know, um, they haven't had enough prenatal care after they've had their baby. Nobody pays much attention to them and, um, and they're lost and we should be doing that. At another level, um, start to think about alternative forms of care. Um, 
there's been a great deal of discussion around doulas and using doulas more widely, um, not just in labor, um, but as home health care workers, in a sense, mm-hmm. providing services to mothers during the prenatal period and in the postpartum period. Um, and that does a couple things. One, it, it certainly just helps the mothers in and of itself. But two, it keeps them as part of the system. That are, if there are difficulties, the, the doulas slash um, home health aides can provide a, a bit of peer navigation to them and get them into the services that they need. There's, there's not magic to this, right? This is like yeah, I, basic public I, health. Yeah, it's always interesting to me. Like it, it, it feels like um, that these ideas of home visiting nurses or, or doulas or home health aides and, and you know, as, as a, a midwife for 20 years, it's always fascinating to me because it's like, that is midwifery. <laughs> it's like, yeah. when, are, when are we going to discover that bringing the midwife back to doing the home visit she's used to doing and the continuity of care and the full family, full perspective, spectrum kind of care is actually the solution? At least that's my perspective. I wonder what your thought is. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, and obviously the models in a number of other countries involve that, right? And are, yeah. and are based on that. And yeah. we haven't adopted that model here. We've, as, as you well know, we've adopted sort of a risk-based model. And um, the problem with that is if it's so resource intensive that, um, that you're, you're spending all your money on um, high-end level three type hospitals with facilities, extensive facilities, that's fine, but not everybody needs that. And if we can take some of that money and um, use it to provide better prenatal care, to provide better community-based services, then everybody benefits. I think so too. Yeah. I mean, of course, I have a vested interest in trying to move the United States towards the international model that is integrative midwifery care. Um, And I think you're right. I think the, the payer source is going to be a huge part of it. If Medicaid is expanded and includes community-based midwifery care, I think we would see better outcomes and less cost. And that's proven out in Washington. They did a great study about the cost of community-based midwifery care saving Medicaid, something like $2 million over the first 10 years. Yeah. Well, the, the, the challenge is this. Um, you know, preventive care, this is always a dilemma we have in public health, right? Preventive care, if it's successful, nothing happens right? That, that the goal is to keep something from happening and keeping something from happening isn't anywhere near as dramatic as having a case where there is a, a potentially terrible outcome that um, you have saved, quote, saved at that point. Yeah. Because then yeah. you can see the benefits of this immediately, right? It's on the face. That person might have died and now they're alive. That's yeah. wonderful. And I want a system that can do that. If we set up a system with more home support, helping women be healthier as they approach pregnancy, that will save lives too, but it won't be as clearly identifiable which ones were saved. Mm. There's nothing that magically says Jane Doe was saved because of that. But from a population perspective, we know that's exactly what's happened. It's not sexy. <laughs> no. No, there's well, nothing heroic about it. America. And, yeah. <laughs> well, <clears throat> it's, uh, it, is, it is exciting to dream up the possibilities, but it is um, potentially equally as challenging to think of all the roadblocks and and this is one of them is that we are we are a infographic you know 
enter news entertainment kind of culture and we like those those catchy headlines and long-term care is not exactly sexy but but i think the more we dream up these solutions the more it seems to me that that every really viable community supported solution evidence-based solution really is the basis of what has historically always been midwifery care it's continuity of care it's whole spectrum care it's in the community it's by culturally matched providers um, so that you get that what is now being called peer-to-peer support naturally in the midwifery model but do you see any other way that we could fast track the integration of midwifery care in this nation um there's two pieces to that right one is the the two types of midwifery you essentially have in the United States between CPMs and CNMs. Yeah. And um, one would be the, and, and this varies by state, right? This is, we are a federal yeah. system. So one piece of it is um, ensuring that there be appropriate regulations for CPMs in states. And ideally um, that at some point they start getting access to hospital care too, which is, yeah. would seem logical in many cases, but, is we're a long way from that. Yeah. The other is there's a lot of models that argue for more CNMs. And, um, and I would certainly support that as well. Yeah. We just need to set up educational facilities to provide them. We don't, we don't have enough. And yeah. um, we can't put out enough. You know, when we say we need another 10,000 CNMs, if, if we're actually going to start having more integrated care like that, then you know if we're putting out six or seven hundred a year that's a long way off we have to have major increases in uh, midwifery education in both contexts yeah i agree and appropriate regulatory support in those uh, various places yeah we're at 33 states that offer licensure for cpms now and and i think there's three or four more that have just entered the legislature and of course, the new mom's bill entered in this Congress, um, earmarking $15 million towards the education of midwives and creation of more schools. So those are two really positive pieces, but I agree, I think it's it's gonna take some time. Luckily, we're really young and we can wait this out. And um, <laughs> all, these, all these things will be solved well within my lifetime. I love that. <laughs> well, thank you again for taking your time to discuss these complex and very important issues with us. I hope it helps. I hope it helps people understand a little more about how the system works and doesn't work. For the last part of this episode, let's go back to Los Angeles and sit with Hayes Hawk again, midwife, doula, and get her understanding and her perspective from working in the community with families in and out of the hospital. I work in the community as a doula as well as a student midwife. So I am in the hospitals a lot. And I have to say that, unfortunately, these stories are correct. They're true. I, and it depends on who I'm supporting too. So if I take in a um, couple of color, the, they're treated differently and the questions they're asked are different than as if I took in somebody who, um, you know, appeared to be the all-American family, uh, whatever that means. <laughs> yeah. um, they 
they don't get asked a lot of things that my couples do. And, and I've actually, unfortunately, have been witness to Child Protective Services being called in a couple of times for only the simple reason that they were either not married and partnering together or they were of color, but both, both the times they were of color. So it's, it's a very, it's a, it's hard to fathom, but it's absolutely uh, what is occurring here. Yeah. Don Thompson, who's the founder of Improving Birth, um, has done a lot to raise awareness. And um, one of the things that she reminds us about is um, this need for true informed decision making. Mm-hmm. And in my perspective, I think that's kind of like the foundational dysfunction of our American medical system is there is this perception that doctor knows best. And this started maybe a century ago. And mm-hmm. this, this perspective is still completely present. And um, on improvingbirth.org and, and VBAC Facts and these other really amazing advocacy websites, um, we're, we're seeing um, these descriptions of of birthing people refusing something simple as they they should be allowed to and like you're saying being treated really really terribly um there was a recent kind of viral post about a couple um of color who had a baby in a hospital and i'm not sure what they even declined i think they were asking for a breast pump and security that's all they were asking yeah that's it they were asking for a breast pump and somehow it escalated to the point where security was called and this brand new couple were escorted out of the hospital with a brand new baby with under threat. Like mm-hmm. how can it be that we've come to this place where people's basic humanity is ignored in favor of the system and habits and procedures and, and the way things have done have been done is more important than what is happening for that particular client. Yeah, unfortunately, what we're, what we're seeing in the media that's going viral is not uncommon. And what it speaks to is just the way that, uh, that women of color are not valued. I mean, I remember hearing the quote that um, the most disrespected woman in America is a black woman. You know, it's, it's, and here we go. Here we see another aspect of that, you know, and unfortunately that situation, which broke my heart, by the way, that situation is not uncommon that if a woman of color says that she's feeling pain or that um, something's not right, or could she have uh, the doctor come in so that she could ask the doctor a question that they are immediately shut down or put in their place, quote unquote, or it is um, belittled and, you know, pushed away like, no, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. Okay, yeah, we'll get somebody in here soon. And that soon is hours later, as we found out with like Kira, hours later, right? Right, or the Serena Williams situation. Or like, Serena Williams, yeah. yeah. Thank goodness she knew her body and she was present enough 
to say, this is what I need. She, what, one of the things I admire about her is she knew exactly what she needed. She asked very specifically for the things that she needed to be checked and was still ignored. So it's not money. It's not visibility. It's not um, anything other than she's a black woman and yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, you don't know. How could you know? You're not educated. And that's the piece that we're really trying to bring into everything. We like, like you were speaking of Don Thompson, you know, making sure that everyone is educated at the same level. What I find is that the families of color that I support are not given the same information. And that's why I'm still doing the doula piece while I'm getting this midwifery license because we cannot have a dropout. We have to continue the education. They have to know their rights, to know what each thing means, to know the difference between an intervention and a complication, um, and to, to be informed so they can make a very educated, powerful choice in how they're birthing their baby. Mm. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just like, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I kind of want you to get started. Like, I want to hear what you have to say. I want to really, I want the, the world to hear how systemic just, and institutionalized racism is affecting um, women of color here in the U.S. Yeah, I want them really to understand because when we say systemic, they're not, they're not really getting it. But what we mean is it's ingrained in the very fiber of their training in medical school like they're taught it so we've got to change how they're taught what we do know is that the midwifery care model does work why does it work because we're not just following a system we're doing person-to-person care that takes in you know takes into consideration all the aspects of this woman the emotional, the physical, the spiritual, the mental, the, it take, we take in all of it. The, the so, social psycho component, everything. And we look at them as individuals. So there, it's not a cookie cutter thing. We know how birth works, but we also know that birth is impacted from the filters that this woman brings into the room with her. So you can't just say, this is the way it's done. This is what's going to happen. Every woman's going to get this everyone's going to be treated like this. That's not, that's not sensible. So we've got to have a conversation and it has to be done in proximity because that's the only way it's going to change that has them look at the training process because there's no, well, there obviously there is a way because this is what's happening, but I was going to say, there's no way you could look at somebody and say they don't matter, but it happens all the time. And what, drove me to want to to do this work is that I believe in the model of midwifery care. I I see that it works. I see that it prevents a lot and that it brings women into their power and families thrive. And I want to say without getting too, you know, on that tip, but they don't want to see us thrive. They don't want to see families of color thriving. So what's the best way to do it? Make sure the kids don't happen. Oh, I mean, so it's, this is a 
it's an ancient way that it's always been done. You want a country, you want a nation, you you stop the birthing of families, you stop the children, you, you, you they just die off, and then you can take whatever you want. There's always yeah. no words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The words that do come to mind are the need, the desperate need for women of color to have providers of color. And this Absolutely. is something that you're working on. Will you tell us a little bit about the project that you're involved in? I would love to. Um, okay. So the project I'm working on is called the NARM Prep Jumpstart Program. And it's for student midwives of color. And what, so what we did, um, as the Californians for the Advancement of Midwifery, which is called CAM, um, we set a goal and our goal was to improve birth outcomes by supporting a pipeline for culturally matched midwives. Families that birth with midwives have improved health outcomes. They experience more respectful care and reduce health care costs, you know. Um, so this was, this was important that we could, you know, make a difference here because we know that families experience barriers to accessing midwifery care. There's a shortage of culturally matched providers, a lack of awareness of their care options and, you know, real and perceived reimbursement issues. So the education piece, again, is huge. It's important. So um, CAM is working to remove these barriers by increasing the number. Tell us what CAM is. CAM is the California, Californians for the Advancement of Midwifery. Um, there used to be California Association of Midwives, and we've changed it because we want to include community because the community is important to this piece, but, but any piece that elicits social change. It takes the community to be involved, and this is very much a community project um, because we want to remove the barriers. And by increasing the number of culturally matched midwives and educating the families about what the midwifery model of care is and, and just to expand the access to licensed midwives for Medi-Cal beneficiaries, they have the, that's their right. They have the right for that. So we're really um, working hard on on doing this. And, and what we have done, like I said, we've launched this new program, but it's been a long process. In the past two years, we developed strategies to increase access to match culturally, culturally matched midwifery care. Um, we have uh, increased access to culturally sensitive care, which is really important because we've got a lot of trauma in the community. We've got a lot of stress that, I mean, these, we're talking about families and women who are just trying to survive and live day to day. So when I go to a client that's in what I call the landlocked area where there's no fresh food, there's no grocery stores that have fresh food. There's only corner stores that have canned food or processed food. So th there's a different type of crisis and stress that these women are dealing with than, say, if I was supporting a family that's in the valley, right? 
Um, it's almost unbelievable. So, like something like 60% of the country's food is grown in California. How is it that Californians yeah. don't have food? Girlfriend, talk oh. to me. I'm, oh. I'm serious right now. Exactly. But, but it's happening. Like they, so a lot of the times I'm bringing food for a family because I want her to be healthy, to be able to do what she wants to do, you know, and, and it's also just educating them, not necessarily for this time, but to educate them for next time, you know? So right now, this is what you're doing. I know you've chosen this hospital to have your baby in, and I know you don't feel necessarily safe there, but we're going to do everything we can to enroll them into the vision of you having this beautiful home birth in a hospital because they really, really, really ultimately want you to have a successful birth. That's what I say. Sometimes I'm met with an opposition to that, but what I do is tell them that, and that's my goal is to have them feel so empowered that they can do that and they can say what they want and say what they don't want and they can stand up for themselves and they can have a uninvasive vaginal birth that they feel great about. No um, matter the location. No matter the location. Right. No matter the location. Yeah, so this program, like literally we have been working on increasing skills and in increasing the capacity of the student midwives of color we have got professional trainings going and really pulling in all the the tools. And what we've done is create this program that is for student midwives of color, created by people of color, for their people of color. And this program is aiming to improve access to culturally specific care for childbearing families of color by increasing the number of student midwives who um, can pass the norm. Because there's, there's women of color, student midwives of color who are training, they go to schools and that's a whole other piece. But passing the norm has been the challenge. And so we created this program that um, will allow us to help them do that. And this program is CPMs, which is Certified Professional Midwives, and LMs, which is licensed midwives, licensed midwives, excuse me. And ultimately, this program provides a vital mechanism for decreasing racial and ethnic health inequities. You know, we really are proud of this because it's the first of its kind. It's based on principles of racial justice and equity. Um, it centers communities of color as leaders, partners, and recipients, of course. Um, and it's for any student midwife of color. The Jumpstart program is going to deliver a culturally responsive test prep curriculum that's infused with community building and um, professional development activities. The, uh, this is, it's never been done. So we have created this pilot program, which starts in just a couple, actually next week. It's, it's, on the, yeah, next it's week. around the corner. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It's next week. Um, we've got some amazing women in here in front of the scenes and behind the scenes. We have really teamed together as a sisterhood. It is profound. It is activated. It is prolific. I am so proud of it. I'm so proud of them and honored to be amongst their numbers. It's going to change everything 
in the That's birth amazing. world. When we've got all these women now ready to go and a whole bunch ready to come in after this. This is just the first. We're going to do it all over California. When we get that going, we're going to take it nationwide. It's happening. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's just for California students right now, but then the expansion right now, yes. is planned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes, it's really it's it's really exciting. I, I just, I really want to applaud you and the whole team who's put this together. I happened to be just in Mississippi last week and Tony Hill was there hosting a workshop online. Ah. He's coming to teach, I think. And <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. really excited about this process. And um, I uh, joined forces in the fundraising effort. And so I will put a link to uh, where folks can join my fundraising team to help support and sponsor um, student midwives of color through this process. You have been amazing. Thank you so much for your support. It's been yeah. incredible what you've been able to do and we receive it with so much gratitude. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 like obvious. It's the next step. If we're concerned about social justice and we're concerned about making the changes and, and dismantling some of this inequity, um yeah. then um, we need more midwives of color. And in fact, when we look at it, there's less than 1% of certified professional midwives in the United States identify as a African-American or black woman. Less than 5% of CNMs identify. And of course, um, even in the obstetrical world, there are very few uh, people of color uh, in obstetrics. And, um, and so it's, it's really vital in all professions. And I love what you're doing for the CPM um, pathway. Thank you so much you. for what you're doing. You. Uh, the last question I have for you is, aside from creating pathways for more midwives of color so that we can have culturally matched providers meeting the, the really drastic need for women of color and specifically for black women and African-American women, um, what else is the next step? Like, for mamas or midwives or doulas or childbirth educators or nurses or doctors from around the world that are hearing about this particular challenge in Southern California, but also across the whole United States and in many places around the globe, um, people of color are still experiencing racism. People of color are still searching for like autonomy, for truth, for respect for sovereignty over their own body decision-making. Mm -hmm. what, what is the most important thing? What's the first step? What can a provider listening to this, a birth worker listening to this, what can they do to make a meaningful impact? You know what? I think that the best way that we can make an impact is to engage community. So I would say reaching out and having events that share the information, not that we're preaching on them or we're hitting them over the head, but that we are enrolling them in the vision of what this can do for the community and how it can support uh, a thriving community, a thriving city, a thriving nation, you know. Um, and by this you it, mean midwifery? I mean midwifery but any type anywhere we have a unequal system the change is going to be in the community anything that we want to um, implement as a change for the better that would benefit 
anyone is to, because listen, we can talk to each other. You and I are in the birth world. Where the real impact is, is from out in the community, getting somebody in some jeans and, and some high tops who's wearing a t-shirt of some of one of their favorite band to say, you know what, my lady's pregnant and she wants to do this. I'm going to support her. She has the right, it's her body, she can do this. They're the most powerful ones. So we can talk to each other, but it's really about getting the information into the areas that don't have access to that information. So reaching out, having community events, sometimes it might not even be about birth, but sponsored by the birth community or sponsored by this, you know, person and it goes in sideways, but like really having a conversation to get these people aware of where their power lies to say, oh, you know what? Support her. She wants a home birth. Support her. She wants to work with midwives. Support her. She wants a hospital birth, but she wants a midwife. Support her in having that experience. Whatever it is that she wants, like if the, all the men stood up and supported the women, it would be a different story. But a lot of times, who throws in the towel first because of their fear and their concern because they're not educated are the men. So I'm saying is that we get out to the communities, we educate, we support, we share our vision. I think that could have a really huge impact. Support your family, support the ladies, support your women, support, you know, stand up, get educated, be there, be responsible. And they were shocked. They were like, oh, like they didn't even know, they didn't even get it. But when we put the statistics on, which I can't remember right now, on the table about how many times the woman said, okay, I'll get the cesarean or okay, I'll get the epidural is because the birth partner was stressed and worried and scared and feeling and disempowered. Yeah, or the mother or mother-in-law. Or the mother and the mother-in-law, yeah. We got to educate them. They just don't know. They don't know what a midwife can provide even, like women's wellness, you know, contraceptive, none of it. They don't know any of it. When I share pe to people that they can see a midwife for a regular pap exam, they're like, what? A breast exam? What? Really? They have no idea. And that's our fault. We've got to share what it is we do. All of it. That's exceptional. <laughs> I hope that answers your question. I don't know. I just went off on a tangent. I love it. I love you. You're so awesome and inspiring and I can't wait to freaking publish this because we're going to be like celebrity status. Like, let's be oh, real. Go on. People are going to be looking up your gram and like, oh yeah, that's my midwife. <laughs> I well, love thank you. you. I, I love, love you. it. Thank you. I love you. And I love, I love what we do. And I, I love, love when love people it. seek me out. I love my returning people. It's just, we're, we're blessed to do this as our calling. And um, I just want to make sure we take good care of it.